We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, Power Trip listeners. Connor Boyle here, senior producer at Intelligence Squared. You're about to hear episode three of Power Trip, the age of AI that looks at how we can ensure the machines, which will have such a big influence over our lives in the near future, will be playing fair. All the full length episodes of Power Trip are available to listen to right now. You can do so by becoming a member of Intelligence Squared or by subscribing to the channel on Apple Podcasts. why is the contraceptive pill designed for women and not men? This isn't because of a physiological reason, but to do with who's got the responsibility for contraception. Recently, people have talked, for example, about dummies that are used to test cards for crashes and how very recently none of that design included women who were shorter and pregnant women. There are all kinds of ways in which the design of the technologies, assuming a kind of masculine model, would impact women negatively. What's interesting now is that we're in a phase where we're much more talking about the data itself. My name is Judy Wiseman, and I'm an emeritus professor in sociology at the London School of Economics, and I also co-lead a project at the Alan Turing Institute on women in data science and artificial intelligence. But I have been working on and writing on and researching about the relationship between gender and technology for my entire career, so probably for four decades, I have to say. In a world as intricate as our own, the concept of a singular objective perspective is but a mirage. Don't get me wrong, facts exist, I'm not a post-truther, but the truths that we live by are sculpted and shaped by the cultures that we live within. So what happens then when AI mixes up with that mesh of different human experiences and traditions? With the countless webs of identities and belongings and stories and pasts that make each of us who we are? Welcome to Power Trip. I'm Carl Miller, and I'm on a journey to understand the changing face of power in the age of AI. How it is being fought over, won, lost, and transformed. Today, we look at operations of power that ripple through all of us. We look at the culture that has shaped frontier AI 
and how the use of these technologies might then shape our cultures back. Welcome to episode three, AI and Society. When speaking about the adverse effects that AI has on society, one of the dangers that people will point to first is bias. AI isn't just about chatbots, of course. More and more high-stakes decisions we're making are informed or influenced by them in some way, like health screening processes and job applications. There are bail-no-bail algorithms in use in the US, and they're probably helping to determine your insurance premiums and credit score and the operation of your next plane. The decisions that the algorithms make can appear totally logical, totally objective, but they can actually have all sorts of prejudices and skews, blind spots and assumptions. These are real examples. A recruitment algorithm preferred men to women, another used race to help it predict if someone would re-offend. Studies have shown facial recognition algorithms to work better on white rather than black faces. So before we go back to Judy, I want you to consider what Olivier Siboney, French author and academic, has to say about bias. Here he is speaking at an Intelligence Squared event from 2022 with Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman. The bias of algorithms is a big topic, right? It's being discussed everywhere and it should be because it's real. But the biases of algorithms are there because algorithms are trained on data that is the past decisions and the past judgments of humans. So what algorithms are doing is they are the mirror of our own biases. They are not worse. What makes the bias more visible when you actually have an algorithm is two things. First, you can actually run a million decisions into the algorithms and see how many biased decisions there are, which you cannot do with a human being. Second, the algorithm is noise-free, as Danny pointed out. It's very consistent in its biases. So if you train your hiring algorithm and you tell the algorithm, these are all the people who've been promoted in my company, figure out what it takes to be successful in my company. And the algorithm comes back and says, you have to hire men, not women. Is the algorithm sexist? No, you are. <laughs> the reason you hadn't noticed is because you are noisy in your sexism. Even the most sexist recruiter is occasionally going to hire a woman. The algorithm won't do that. The algorithm will say, well, it's pretty clear that here to be successful, you need to be a man. The bias of these models is very often created then by the bias they learn from us, from the data that societies create, that we all create, and the flaws that they carry in that regard are often very human ones. And what this begins to point to is how power can operate in quite silent ways. We've looked at money, we've looked at huge companies that run these models, and the power there is pretty obvious, I think. But now we're talking about the invisible skews and preferences that live in all of us in different ways. So far then, we've looked at bias in the training data, but that's not the only way that culture shapes this sort of technology. So let's go back to Judy to look at the culture of a much narrower group, the very people actually building this technology in the first place. How is it that these gender relations of the work get reproduced? Because at every revolution, it's always said, ah, this will be the, you know, so that when we have the digital revolution, it was, well, well, engineering is kind of dirty and heavy. And now we've got digital technology. Women will be able to enter this profession. Now we've got a whole new iteration of generative AI. And somehow the expertise is still very much 
related to masculinity. And I think the sort of current form actually isn't that different from the last form. I was a great fan of people like Sherry Turkle's books who described engineers at MIT and computer scientists back in the 80s. And she described these guys who sat there all night with pizza, fried pizzas in the middle of the night and had prizes for who was the ugliest. You know, she talks about a culture of engineering at places like MIT where notions like the hacker, you know, all those caricatures of nerds and hackers. When actually, when I was in Silicon Valley a few years ago, studying um, some of these companies, I was very struck by the fact that, that these companies still were 24-7, you know, that whole business about how their campuses with laundries and gyms and, you know, so that they were very much set up to occupy people's whole lives in a way. And that means that work-life balance is very difficult and it's a context in which it's much harder for anybody except actually unencumbered young men to thrive, let's put it in that way. And so I think there's a lot of continuity in the kind of culture of technological work that somehow we still haven't broken. Now, this technology is only just beginning to tread what we expect to be a very heavy footprint on societies and the world. So really, it's too soon to identify all the areas where this pervasive bias might cause unintended but serious harm on certain groups of people. One area which was recently reported on by Tortoise Media was the risk of AI worsening women's healthcare. If the technology was left to make decisions based on historic healthcare data, it would stand to exacerbate a long history of underdiagnosis. Currently, women who have a heart attack in the UK are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed than men. If more decisions were handed over to the technology, how high could this number actually rise to? That was episode three of Power Trip. If you enjoyed the episode and want to get the fast track to the future right now, become a member of Intelligence Squared to get all the full length episodes of Power Trip to listen to right now. Head over to intelligencesquared.com membership or by subscribing to the channel on Apple Podcasts.